Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Hello and welcome to Headliner Radio, where we are delighted to be joined by producer, mixer and recording engineer Mark Daniel Nelson. Throughout his career, Mark has worked across a variety of musical genres and has built up a substantial body of work uh, spanning across... Uh, the world's film, TV, trailers, commercials, and a whole host of other areas. Uh, so, Mark, firstly, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, great to have you on the show. How are you? And uh, and whereabouts are you joining us from? Doing good in sunny Southern California, Los uh, Angeles, California. Very nice. And uh, how is life treating you there at the moment? How are how are things? How's uh, how's How's life in in a, in sunny LA? It's pretty good. Um, it's getting warm already for April. It's it's a little spooky, but in general, it's really good. You know, work is great. People are starting to get out. Um, trying to meet with as many people as I can in person to get that universe back going again, and dinners and stuff like that. And it's been pretty good. Yeah. Excellent. Good to hear. Well, as I said, it's great to have you on the show. And um, I was hoping to have a, a chat about, well, a variety of things really, but, you know, a, a, a real look at your career and the, the various areas that you've you've worked in because you've had a very kind of varied and diverse career to date. Um, I'd like to start at the beginning, if that's okay. I was wondering if you could tell us a little yeah. bit about your, your route into music and, and audio um, and what it was that first kind of inspired you to... To, to go on this journey as it were yeah so i would say it's always going to go back to the beatles when i was in high school you know started playing guitar and you know i, I remember listening to you know the beatles growing up and stuff but it wasn't until the anthology came out and you could see you know george martin sitting in front of the console and all these neat things back in 94, 95. And it just seemed cool. I mean, I liked playing guitar and I liked writing songs and stuff, but I really liked creating the music and making that because it was something you could do almost like woodwork where you could do it and there was a reward by the end of the day. You know, if you're a writer or a songwriter or a player, you can only do so much, can't do it all. So this kind of wrapped that all up. So I got into that and my dad and my mom let me build a studio in the basement. I think my dad said because he didn't let me build a tree house. So I was able to cut half of the basement and I really went to town on it and went to a couple auctioned houses that were basically being demoed and Got a lot of stuff to build this studio and got a four track, did the whole shebanger. It was great. Fantastic. So, so I mean, when you started to move into to music as a, as a profession, I guess, as a career, what was the, what was the route that you took there? Was it, was it kind of something that developed from, you know, writing and recording your own music? Was it, did you join a studio and work there? What was your kind of route into taking, you know, what was a passion and a, and a, uh, kind of like a, 
uh, a ho- not a hobby because it would have been more serious than a hobby, but taking something that was a, 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 a extracurricular interest into a professional career. Yeah. I think a lot of it was, I was a really bad student mm. and, um, I mean, I was really bad ADD, ADHD, whatever you want to put it. So Mm. I was always being told by teachers, you know, what are you going to do with yourself? Why are you? And a lot of it was just because I was absolutely bored and I didn't care about algebra or science or anything. I mean, I cared about things I cared about. So if I did care about history, it was specific to what I wanted to learn about, not because I wanted to learn about something else. So a lot of it was that. And I remember being advised by, I don't know if it was a social worker or what, but they're like, what are you wanting to do? And I said, or what do you like? You like music, right? And I'm like, I like music. It's great. I like recording. I like the technical. They're like, well, why don't you go into broadcasting school? Like, cause I don't want to be a disc jockey. <laughs> and so they said, well, there's not really schools for, I mean, there is, but we don't know about them. Anyway, so she ended up finding the recording workshop in Ohio, which at the time, the very late 90s, early 2000s, it was, you know, one of the few schools. There was a handful of schools, but it wasn't like today. Mm. And, and it certainly wasn't sustainable like today in the sense that there was just tons and tons of options. So I got into it then. Went to school for the, whatever the courses were, was it like 11 weeks or something like that? And then I came back home and I lived about 40 miles outside of Chicago in Indiana and just started sending resumes out. I mean, I was a terrible student at the school too. It was awful. <laughs> just, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't learn the way that most people do. I want to hands it. So mm. Anyway, so sent a bunch of resumes out, and it was funny. The one, the only one I got response to, out of fifty resumes, was the largest studio in Chicago. And I didn't know this at the time. It was a studio called Chicago Recording Company, still there, still amazing. Um, and I went there because you couldn't really look things up at the time. The you know the internet wasn't the same. And I remember going for my interview and it was like, you're not getting paid. This is an internship. You're not starting for two months. All this stuff. But I remember walking in for the interview and seeing every gold record that I was just, holy cow, this is exactly what I wanted to do. Mm. Of course, I was confident enough to say, I could do this. I can get on the mixer. I can start mixing. This is easy. Even though I had no idea what I was doing. But it was really cool. I mean, it was just like I was such, I was on a massive high because, you know, you're in the big city. You're walking in a huge recording studio. The first record you see is Michael Jackson. And you see everything from, you know, everything mm. I could think of was on the wall. And just being like there, just the energy and it was really cool. So that's where I started as an intern. You know, and then I started assisting there, got stuck assisting. You know, that's the thing about these, these start outs for these studios back then where if you get called to do one gig, you might get stuck with that gig for 11 months or something. So I got mm-hmm. stuck doing the night stuff. 
And I had to take anything because it was paid. And then after that, you know, that went on for a year, year and a half. And then I freelanced. And But I still am really close to a lot of those people from mm. that time period. And a lot of those people are still working, which is great. But that was my first um, introduction to SSL, the console. I believe it was a 6,000 SSL. And it was very intimidating. But at the same time, I was cocky enough to believe that I could handle it, which was insane at the time. <laughs> but, I mean, after a while, the, the people that I really respect and respected at the time, you know, they saw some kind of something and they cut me down to get me, you know, my, my passion and my excitement and my ego kind of down in check. You know, you have to learn the system. You have to learn the process. You have to learn all these things as an intern in the industry. You, you just don't jump in. So it was pretty, you know, eye, eye-opening yeah. to get into it and just kind of starting walking in and seeing people. I remember that one day I walked in and I saw Eddie Better. And he had blonde hair. It was bizarre. And he was short. Like all these like completely new experiences at 18, 19 years old. Mm. And and remember seeing Billy Corgan walk in and he was really tall. And then these things I really didn't know. And um, you know, crazy stuff. R. Kelly. The Michael Jackson album that was there, I, I remember hearing from the other guys that were there during dangerous so this was four years before they had to shut the entire building down and have guards on all i mean it was just insane that's crazy yeah i think the first week i started it was the smashing pumpkins last single they did as a as a band band wow and you know i wasn't part of the session or anything manny sanchez who's a friend of mine was a third so give you an idea of how low I was. He was a third and he was there for a while. So I think I got to put the water out. So there's some videos of that session music videos out and I can see the water lining the wall. And I just (laughs) thought that was the coolest thing ever being a part of something that was going out in the world. And I was like, I did that. Yeah. So it was that kind of buzz that really got me in to, yeah, to this whole universe, just seeing the professional side of music and album making. And it wasn't for a while to really start learning the craft, but it was okay because I just wanted to be a part of it. I mean, I remember Dave Matthews coming in for a live thing. They would do these live broadcasts in the studio. And I just remember just like standing, talking in the early morning and everyone's walking around. He's just sitting on the stool. And I remember just thinking like, Here's a guy for me that's super famous, but just living life. Like he comes in, he looks hungover, he feels tired. He's chatting with people that are nobody. I ended up talking to him for like 30 seconds or something like that, which wasn't anything. But when you're 19 and you're nobody and he's, he, he remembered your name and all these weird little things, these are moments that like absolutely made things worthwhile. Why are you working for free? Why are you doing these things? So I think a lot of it was that, um, these moments of just like being part of something bigger and making music. And it wasn't just stuck in 
you know, going forward, I knew a lot of guys that were stuck in one genre or they were stuck in one, you know, band for a while. They were their engineer or whatever, their producer for five years. And I think I liked the idea of being able to jump around. So I went and started third engineering on, uh, which basically meant runner in the room because there was interns, there were runners, then there was the runner in the room, then there was the assistant, and then there was the main engineer. And I started going to the, um, you call them jingle sessions, but I wouldn't call them that because they were like superstar level stuff, like Disney and larger scale, like 30-piece orchestras with a full rhythm section. So you would have these unbelievable sessions. And at the time... Um, there was an engineer, Gus, who was just, he, I would still say he was probably the best and I still consider him the best. Cause I just watched him just fly. And then there was Dennis Tusana, who was the assistant. And then I was the run third, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, seeing him tracking 30 piece orchestra, a drum, bass, guitars, couple background singers, brass section all at once all tied to union rates and everything where everything had to go quick i thought that was just the coolest thing ever too because it would literally go one day you're recording or working with a band and it's very casual and everyone's hanging out or a hip-hop session and it's really casual and then the next day you're doing these big you know jingle commercial tracking sessions that are just absolutely extremely expensive, extremely stressful. But just, I remember just like walking around and testing the 414. It's weird. I remember doing that for um, Gus and Dennis. That was my job when we had at least 40 microphones out there. And I would walk around and scratch the diaphragm of the mic just so they could test it. And I just remember hearing that sound because if I would go into the control room and Dennis was out there going and doing it and that's like so embedded in my brain. And that was over 22 years ago. It's crazy yeah. just thinking about that. So, you know, I, I think about stuff like that and like, that's like the passion right there. I don't know. I'm getting excited just thinking about it. <laughs> Scratchy. I haven't done that in 20 years, but um, yeah, because then I learn other techniques of being able to just do this or tapping stuff with a drumstick just lightly on the back by the stand just so you can get vibration to test it. And you're basically seeing if you're going to get a good signal. But, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I, I think about that all the time, just the feeling I would get going into that building. Because it was a big building downtown in a very busy part of Chicago. Major things were happening every day. There was a lot of ADR post rooms in the building as well. So there was a lot of actors coming in and out. I remember I was having to take the producer's movie was out. And this was the um, Matthew Broderick version of the producer. So that was what, 19... 1999, 2000. Um, I'm trying to remember if it was, yeah, 2000 or something like that. So Mel Brooks was the director, obviously. And I remember I had to take 
Mel Brooks up the elevator and into Studio 4, which was the SSL room, when they were doing something for the movie or the play or both. And it was just so random, but it was so exciting. So that's what I really liked. Before the technical side, it was more about the atmosphere and the vibe and hanging out with amazing talent and just getting excited where all these people were doing the same thing for their job. And I had all these friends that were in college and they were just learning about becoming an accountant or something or a pharmacist. Yeah. Just like, it was so weird. It was a very different time in the industry. And that's my intro to that. Like yeah. the real deal intro of getting into it. I don't know if I've told the extensiveness of the story, but I can still smell the studio. You could still smoke in the building then. Mm. I can remember eating grilled cheese from the Cambridge house, which was this really divey diner that we basically had a retainer with yeah. for the studio. So you could go over and get a grilled cheese and not have to pay for it. Yeah. And save your $4. But it was a lot when you're an intern before I was getting paid. But uh, real quickly, though, going into that, there was a uh, probably the head post guy in Chicago. And he was, you know, he produced a ton of content, like all the superstar stuff. So anytime Oprah was doing commercials or whatever, or you know, James Earl Jones, something like at that level, Tim Butler, who was this great guy, was very intimidating. He looked like Stanley Kubrick. Right. You know, he's an incredibly powerful dude, basically could do anything he wanted, walked around the building with his dog Tron. And he's incredibly intense, just this bizarre guy, but very intelligent. Very intelligent, like spooky intelligent. And just how he talked to people. And a lot of people were turned off by him because he was pretty intense. But, you know, I liked it because I thought, you know, the way he looked, because he was just this kind of strange guy, on top of the fact that he was into politics on both sides and he would debate you and he would talk to anyone. Yeah. You know, the janitor or, you know, James Earl Jones. Like something ridiculous like that. And he push you. So anyways, I started doing that, which was weird because I wanted to do music and not just, you know, commercials at all. But anyway, so I started working with him too. And he had the pull to be able to say, Mark can do this as well. Let him do the music stuff, but he's going to work with me too. So I got to work with him a bit for that year and just learn how things worked and how, how to kind of run a room, understand the psychological aspect of being a producer engineer, how to talk to clients, how to manage your time, how to engage in conversation, what to talk about, what not to talk about. It was just a lot of time. I mean, I spent a lot of time at his house. He had this great house that just had stuff. And this is before, you know, computers got crazy. So a lot of my jobs were just like to digitize extensive magazines and music into, if you remember the old apples that looked like the shell, yeah, the, yeah. Um, the color, it was like an orange laptop. So I got to take that and just take his entire CD and record collection and put it into iTunes. And I remember the election was going on at the time. 
with Al Gore and George Bush and we were watching it and he was just asking me these questions and we were talking about like everything. This is before 9-11. So yeah, it was just wild thinking about it. It was just, I mean, I learned probably the most important thing is not necessarily technical. It's more about how to handle your ass if something happens or yeah, I don't know. I mean, Tim Butler was the guy that really helped. You know, Gus was the guy with Dennis Tucson were the two guys that helped me understand technical. I want to do this. I'm hearing what they're doing. I'm seeing what they're doing. This is what I want to do. And Tim Butler was the guy in the beginning that was like, it's a hangout. It's, it's a community. And, you know, you don't just talk to people you like. You talk to people you don't like. And you understand why you don't like them or you try to learn or you try to help yourself and be good. But at the same time, have fun kind of getting into the deep conversation. So that was a lot of fun learning that stuff. And I learned a lot of patience. I remember I broke a vase and he blew his gasket and I thought I was done for. He was going to fire me at CRC and he laid into me, but then he just said, you know what? I'm watching your response here and I can tell you that when you first start working with me, you would not have responded like that. You would have instantly fired back at me and you would have done all these things. And the fact that you are just absolutely patient and calm right now and you know you effed up. Yeah, it was a big moment. So yeah, he basically said, you know, you're, you're gaining traction. You're learning how to like tolerate the incentive. I mean, he used to fuck with people all the time, tons of people on purpose, just, and maybe it wasn't great, but at the same time, he was just pulling the best out of people. I really did see that. And so by the time you start assisting, you're kind of, you have the shell, which I don't know psychologically is a great thing for assistant engineers to be battered like this. I was talking to a good buddy, David of mine, who was my assistant at East West in LA. We just hung out the other week and we talk about the psychological aspect of being an assistant and how much you take and stuff. But I think if you know it and you're passionate enough, it works out really well mm. and you go into it, but you gotta, you gotta guard yourself and don't let people take advantage of you. Yeah. I just talked for 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I mean, that, that is a really interesting point, actually. To give you an idea. Tim Butler was the first guy. This is before anyone. He had this company that he created. And it was called Patches. This is before anyone was doing this. So there was like all these A-list people being able to do voiceovers all over the world. And he could just patch it and stay in his studio in Chicago and have anyone do a voiceover or whatever from where they were at. And it was a super high quality transmission so he he coined that in the beginning before it got ridiculously you know exposed where everyone was doing stuff like that but it was an interesting time for sure yeah a lot of money to be made i wish i was working then <laughs> that but, was a, a very different industry uh, yeah, at the time yeah. uh in, yeah. in so many different ways um but it's it's fascinating to hear that and i think that the you know the kind of psychological element you were talking about there i think the the kind of things that perhaps assistants would have been uh, you know put through and games that might not games that have been played but you know people trying to test people's limits and 
you know, the, the what kind of character they might have, things like that. I wonder how much that would would exist now. Whether that kind of thing would be called out a little bit more as perhaps you know, kind of oppressive a or a little bit bullying. Yeah. Or I don't know, but it's is I, it, I, I imagine a totally different environment different. today in a, in a studio like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, legal reasons. There was a lot of things I had to do that you don't make a unpaid. 19 year old do in the sense of like sweeping floors and yeah. mopping bathrooms. And I mean, I've done a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have done either because as an intern slash running slash assistant, before you graduate into the assistant world, you're still doing the, the everything you can to show them that you're, you're, you're ready and you're able. And this is before got, you know, when people started trusting you, but I think that was the process was can we trust you? Because if you are going to be in front of Michael Jackson, or if you are going to be in front of somebody that's superstar level, mm. you have to be ready. You can't yeah. be like, like ready and good, but then t- totally freaking out because you're so nervous and yeah, technical so you had to have skill confidence kind of, and yeah, te- I yeah. guess technical skill kind of goes out the window at that point. You could be highly skilled, but then if your if your head goes the moment the superstar walks into the room. You just have to be ready. And, you know, I was such a bad student. So learning certain things took a little bit of time, like learning compression and learning all these things. But the thing I got real quickly was just the confidence of knowing my temperature, meaning I knew how and tried not to overstep, but try to gain traction. And I made a ton of mistakes getting into it. And it was a cocky little kid, but at the same time you had to be to kind of push through and, yeah. you know, start meeting other bands and start working. Cause that's what I did. I went freelance and, mm. you know, I wanted to work, work, work. Yeah. I mean, did you have, cause you know, as, as we've said, you, you've worked in so many different fields, you know, various different genres of music, uh, TV, film, etc. Do you have a particular, favorite area that you like to work in most of all or an area where you feel that you know you, you're especially at home or or, or conversely a, an area where you find even perhaps more challenging than, than other areas what kind of your are there any areas in particular that you're either drawn to or perhaps rail against or is it all is it all something that you, you just embrace and, and enjoy the the variety that comes up with with having so many areas of expertise yeah, I mean, I got into this to make records, you know, to work with bands and stuff. And I only got into film because of the challenge aspect of working for 15 years in record making. And um, I really, it's funny, you know, starting out, recording the band, recording the song, working on the song, being a producer, creating arrangement ideas or music ideas for the song and then mixing the song and then something happened you know for a while there i was you know really enjoying the the tracking you know you would spend two months with a band literally three months sometimes six and then you would have to mix the song and you'd be so fried Mm. because you just spent all this time on this music that i just started noticing that you just it's hurting you know, being a part of both sides. So mm. I had to really start witnessing myself do some kind of 
moves and changes in my life that would help that process. So I, I think that's when it started, you know, focusing on you can make records and stuff, but also try to find work that's just mixing. Because just mixing would be just hanging out with, you know, yourself or one other person or the couple guys and working on the song fresh. And for me, I always liked movies growing up. My family was a big movie family. And I wanted to understand the movie making because that's really how I got back into um, the film universe was it kind of started just because I like entertainment, music and movies. But um, when I was 14, I went to L.A. My family's friends um, had really good access to Warner Brothers a lot at the time. So we went, me and my cousin Alex got to go super private tour. It was really great. I mean, it was, wasn't like a traditional tour around a studio lot. It was literally, we could go anywhere we wanted. He was an, you know, an EP. So he had enough, you know, either he was an EP or he was working for an EP because he had access anywhere he wanted anywhere. I mean, we got to go watch Will Smith shoot Wild Wild West. We went on the friend set by ourselves and played foosball and Drew Carey show set and played pool and we're on the ER set and I took band-aids <laughs> from the set. So that was the first, you know, movie making universe. And there was a guy, Dennis Durante, which is interesting. I remember his name, but he was mixing, I think it was mixing post or something for movies. I met him there and I thought that's what I want to do. So, by the time I was making music records and stuff, that was when I was 14. So by the time I was starting as a 19-year-old, as an engineer, um, I, I started thinking, is there ways to combine the two? So I think I was like 21 when I went to film school in Chicago. My parents were very pushy about making sure you got a bachelor's degree and stuff because they saw that just because I went to an audio school, is it going to actually do anything? So I went to film school, college in uh, Columbia in Chicago and studied directing with a minor in editing, which editing is very similar creatively to just be able to get into that and be able to feel like you're getting something out of it. So doing that and being a full-time freelance engineer at the time. I was a manager of a recording studio. I was making records and going to school full-time for film. And, you know, when I finally got out of graduated college, it was 2005, 2006. And I was like, what am I going to do? I got to combine these two somehow. There's got to be a way to combine these two, filmmaking and album making. So I think that's how it started getting into that universe slowly, but I had to make a conscious decision because at that time, Chicago was really doing well in the music world. A lot of, at the time, music was very heavy rock, kind of lots of rock bands from Chicago were being very successful doing what they were doing. So it was weird leaving Chicago at that time to move to LA because it was doing so well. 
So I think, you know, a lot of it was just, well, I want to get in the movies. I want to start doing bigger picture stuff. Um, I already had a really good background as an assistant and, you know, five years, six years as an engineer at that time. So I had a good resume to just say, okay, there's something there. And I was producing an album at that time, engineering and producing an album from a mentor of mine and who's for 20 something years now been like a super confident mentor, but we were working on them for a long time, a couple of years and Bill Schnee mixed the album. Doug Sachs mastered the album. And I remember going out before we even mixed talking with Doug, then meeting Bill and just being like, this is it. This is the level I want to be at. I mean, you can't get any higher than that. And going to Bill's studio, and I remember like Abe Jr., Laborial. He was Paul McCartney's drummer, this great drummer. Great guy, too. Really cool guy. I got to work with him after that. Just super great. Just just being in awe and being like, this is it. This is where I want to be. This is as high as you can get in the industry. And filmmaking can happen too, somehow. I know it. Because Bill at the time, he was doing a lot of score work and stuff like that. So I remember just jokingly telling Bill, I'm going to come out and we'll work with you. Because after he mixed the album that I produced, we just had a good vibe. It felt really good. And then we went up to Ohio and worked with Doug Sachs. And it just felt right. And I met my good friend Eric Boulanger, who is now superstar mastering guy in LA. You guys should do an article with him. He's amazing. But he was just starting then too. So him and I were the young guys. And that's kind of where it started. I moved to LA and I just stuck to Bill and learned anything I could of what he was doing, how to really make records, how to really record stuff, how to really listen, how to really mix that was the other thing. It was like getting me into like really falling in love with mixing records. Mm. And the thing that he did well was being able to jump genres, literally like changing your shirt. And I didn't know, I knew a lot of engineers that would do all sorts of types of music, but that wasn't as good at doing that, like stronger at doing that than anyone I ever met was equally good at any type of music you put in front of him. And he could do it literally on a dime. And sometimes he would take elements and influence off of this type of music and pull it into this type of music. And he was just really creative. And you know, I talked to him recently about it. And he just he's just unaware of what he does, which I guess a lot of people are. But I think a lot of it was basically, as an engineer producer, Bill Schnee was... You know, this guy that was in front of so many massively successful artists and projects over the 45, 50 years he was working that he picked so much stuff up that it just became the system for him. So for me to just like really watch how he was doing stuff, we just used to have these really great conversations about why. And he was really good at like, not answering it, but kind of just showing you without even, it's really hard to explain, but I think that was it for me. So then obviously stayed in LA and, you know, I started working on random stuff from there, but it was time to kind of 
part away because I wanted to start making, you know, my own name out of stuff. Cause at the time I was with Bill, I, it was, it wasn't like I was an intern. Mm. I mean, I was six, seven years in as a professional and managed plenty of studios, worked on plenty of albums, larger albums. It was just more about just how, how does he do stuff? Cause it was him kind of paving the way for creative listening and being able to be a critical observer about how audio was presented. And that was the huge reason why I kind of stuck to him. Him and Doug Sachs was just understanding the, the, the last 5% of mixes and all these elements that were the hardest thing to get. Hmm. And, you know, by the time I left and started, I started a new studio right after that. It was just like, I was super ready confidence wise, not like happy in the sense of, you know, Oh yeah, I'm to- doing great work. Cause that never ends. Like you you're just constantly badgering yourself going, I got to get better. I got to get better. This is terrible. Oh, this is terrible. This sounds like crap. But like I was ready because I had all these like, I don't know. I've just felt really good about starting that studio when I did because I had so much focus and stuff. And that kind of got me into kind of producing music for picture and commercials slowly. So in the longest way of getting and answering your question, <laughs> that's how I kind of got into the both merged into both of them. I mean, it's a fascinating path, I think into, into both of those. Um, I mean, I was curious, you, you mentioned uh, a couple of times uh, SSL uh, during during that story. And I was I was wondering, for you, what some of the kind of cornerstones of your studio setup are, what kind of some of the, the real like essential pieces of kit that, um, that, that you, you kind of can't do without? Now compared to then? I mean, the biggest thing that's changed in the industry is I would say 15 years ago, it doesn't mean you couldn't do it, but if you were working alone in your own house and you weren't, you know, you didn't have a consistent massive amount of work, you would be in a really big, you'd be in trouble. You know, a lot of people want to know that you were on a council and they want you in the studio because the room apparently was tuned a specific way. There was all these ridiculous standards at the time. And a lot of it was just because technically there were things that cost a lot of money. And if if you couldn't cut corners at that time, now technology has allowed you to do so much stuff. For me, being in my own little room with all my own stuff where I know exactly where everything's set has been everything and i i've kind of been in that atmosphere for probably eight years where i i have everything i have well maybe 10 everything i have is consistent so if i turn it off i turn it back on it's a system and right now you know i went through all these different kind of tests to try to find a summing amp that sounded like the the records I liked growing up and working on, on the SSL 4000 and the 6000 and the 8000 that I worked on. 
when I was younger. And the Sigma at the time was the best, still is, still use it. So I have the solid state logic Sigma. And, you know, I've got a lot of SSL stuff now. It's funny looking around at it. The UFA has been a game changer for me. And that's their little eight channel controller. And that and the UC1, which are just like very touch handily. They're kind of inexpensive when you consider what they are compared to what they would have been Mm. 20 years ago. But the amount of options and the the flexibility you can use by using these little things and the fact that you can travel, because now I like to literally pack up for a couple of weeks and just get out of Dodge. But I can take these little setups and be completely portable and absolutely put out quality record. I think that kind of made things happen when COVID first hit. And I've told this story where I had everyone didn't know what was happening, but I was, I remember going, I have to, I have to mix stuff on headphones because I was traveling. I was up in Seattle with my parents and I didn't have my studio then. So I had my computer and I had, like a rolling rack of audio gear and headphones. So I had to learn that. And then I remember turning in a Netflix movie. I mixed the score on that Moxie film Mm. that I did um, the strings on and just mixed the orchestra part and did those on all and headphones and everything turned out good. And I think that was the first moment of saying, you can do this. You just have to learn how to do this. So being able to have certain things in my rack that can be portable when it needs to be portable and be able to have like a little fader device like the UFA that's small that I can literally put in a bag if I wanted to, but still have the flexibility and the strength as if it's a larger control service. I used to have a larger control service and um, like one of those little icons things. And it was great, but man, was it big and heavy. I remember moving around and, I went back and rented a lake house on Lake Michigan for six months doing a project in 2016. And I had to get that back there. And it was just enormous and heavy. And if I could do that now with all the options I have with all these, oh man, so much better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a handful of things that I absolutely have to have that I've just, it's taken me many, many years to get the sound that I have in my setup. But the fact that it's just so streamlined, it works so well. But I can tell you that in the back of my head, I always think, is there something better? Yeah. Can I get it better sounded? <laughs> Which I guess is really yeah. good because of the course. second you stop that, it's over. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, SSL have recently uh, launched the new uh, Bus Plus um, which I understand you've been uh, you've been kind of playing around with and using. How have you found that so far? Yeah, that was a that was a neat one. Um, I got that way early before way before anyone knew what it was, and I was a little at the very beginning. I was interested because I love compressors. And it's funny I like compressors because not because of the compression but just being able to color things slightly. And in my room, I have one, two, three, four, 
five, six, seven stereo compressors. I just like them. They're the greatest. Yeah. But the, um, the bus plus, it was something that I was really interested in because I liked the tube tech multi-band compressor because it was, it did something by multi-band compressing. You could, it would get this depth front to center thing. Really cool. And I always liked the SSL sound, but the problem with the SSL sound on the compressor, the VCA compressor, for me was for a lot of music is a little too much. Mm. It's a little too heavy handed, a little too heavy, a little too snappy. There was something there. So when I was told about this compressor before they sent it to me, um, they were explaining, okay, there's going to be these elements and I remember just being like, oh, okay, that, that, that sounds much better. If there's, if it does, I mean, but at the same time, at that time, this is last year, I remember just being like, there's a thousand SSL bus compressors out there. SSL has a thousand bus compressors out there. Why, why is this going to be any different? And I mean, I'm not a skeptical person, but I was very, um, focused and interested to see if it was really going to be something that was going to be different. And there's one thing that I will absolutely put my name down on the table saying, I will never um, just honor or put something out there saying that I like it just because I'm told to say that. Like I will never put my name on anything unless I'm absolutely floored, unless it's absolutely new and impressive, innovative, whatever it's going to be. And I remember it showing up and the first thing I thought was, and knowing it was like the only one in LA, probably the only one in the country at the time. And it was a little intense because I'm just wanted to send pictures to my friends and say, <laughs> look at this. But I couldn't. And so I was like, you know, trying to fool around with it. But I remember taking it out of the box. It was like really heavy. And that always impressed me. Yeah. Even though it could have just been a bunch of metal at the time. <laughs> but then the knobs were really, really, you know, nice, stepped. And, you know, the features were great. But I just remember just, like, liking how it felt. I know that sounds weird, but that really instantly, first impressions are everything for me. So if I pulled it out of the box, regardless of how it sounded, and it was just light or something cheap, and you know, could feel the tension in the plastic or something like that. And you could just tell it wasn't great. Yeah. It would instantly, instantly take it away. So regardless, you know, you're spending money on something. You want quality regardless of if it's discounted or whatever. And that was before I plugged it in. So then I plugged it in. Then it went through its thing with the relays. And I'm a sucker for relays. I'm a sucker for stepped mastering grade pots too so anything that makes these big clunk, clunk, clicks or relays that go yeah i just like that sound i don't know what it is so it did that the lights were really nice and i just started going through it and this is pre-manual and stuff um i knew a little bit about what it was doing but the thing that attracted me the most were three things one was i liked the idea that it was a vca i already had a vca compressor at ssl but I didn't use it a lot anymore because it didn't have a mix knob and it was really heavy handed and it was just kind of vanilla sounding on its own. 
for what it needed to be. And I was like, okay, this thing has cool options, three options that I was attracted to. One was the mix knob, huge for me. Even if it's just 50-50, I can still get a nice transparent sound while getting that heavy sound as well. The other one was the dynamic EQ because it was something similar in my head, even though it wasn't set up like that tube tech that I loved. It was something where I could fix a frequency, duck that frequency in a way, in a broad way where it creates a depth or maybe it could do that or excite a frequency and get a nice little snap in a specific area. Oh, that's not enough punch. I can add 150 hertz. Just expand that frequency so it just punches it. And I like that idea. And then I was told about this low THD thing and Ross at marketing was like, you're going to love this. <laughs> like, right. And so I, I tried that and he was right. I was just like, you should put my name on this. This is exactly, this is crazy. It was exactly what I wanted out of compressor without having any idea how to explain it. It was almost like they read my mind. That's why I was like, this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. It was this weird option of low THD, which is obviously some kind of low distortion effect that you could bl- not blend, but you could blend the two sounds of these the kind of clean sound and a harder sound. And then when you blend the two, it created its own sound. And it was exactly in my head what I liked because I didn't, I'm, I came from a background of like clear and open and massive and high fidelity, but I also came from a background of dirty rock and distortion and stuff. So I had to find ways to blend the two in my head. And this box, one box was able to do both things. So by the time I started playing with it, I was really mad because I couldn't tell anybody Yeah, because it was doing something that I wanted out of a box for a long time. I was a huge tube compressor sucker, but I really stayed away from solid state on the tube bus specifically for the fact that a lot of them clamp too hard for my taste. And this thing, you were able to get it with just all these different options to a place that everything was up front and hard and beautiful sounding, but then you could back off certain elements and then bring the the really transparent size stuff back in. And you were, you were not basically your hands were tied by only having one option and it wasn't cheaply done, which I'm still surprised how they were able to do it because um Usually for a box that has this many options, you think they cut corners. It's like a car. You know, they cut corners because they did all these things because they did one thing right. And this box seems to really focus on just, it's almost like a mastering level box to be able to have the options. So that's how I got into that guy. And I cannot, absolutely, I cannot um, praise it enough. I mean, there's, I feel almost like a, like a snake oil salesman or something because I'm just like (laughs) floored by it. And it's just, it's very unique for what it is. And I'm a guy that hates options. Like I, I've, I've refrained from buying gear because there's too many options on the box. But for me, this guy has the exact three options I wanted. 
So it's complicated once you understand it. But for me, it was perfect because it was these three options that I can either use or not. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's the perfect fit, really. Uh, for Bitch made you, in heaven. Is, yeah, fantastic. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit as well about um, what you have coming up in the pipeline. If there's anything uh, in particular that you're working on at the moment that you can tell us about. Yeah, I mean, there's handful of projects always kind of cooking hold on <clears throat> there's always handful of projects cooking i think it kind of balances between filmmaking and album work i mean i'm still doing quite a bit of film mixing and stuff i mean that kind of kicked in pretty heavily in 2013 2012 you know, I started recording score music and mixing score music and stuff like that. And it kind of just got more and more and more to the point where for like two years there, that's all I was doing and wasn't making records as much. And now I'm, I'm pretty much even. So I've got two films cooking right now. There's a feature film that I'm doing in the fall that is kind of a way bigger universe and just a couple of album mixes right now, some stuff. I just finished a couple of songs for the band Need to Breathe. And I should probably look at my list of some other stuff I've done. Some pretty nice stuff, larger name stuff. Um, yeah, it's work, work is good right now. I was a little worried during COVID, like what was happening. But yeah, I think... Between the film work and the album work, I don't know. I don't know if I would want to take on anything more. You know, you get that point where that sounds kind of pretentious, but I think you get to that point where you worry that if you if you took on anything more, it's going to really mess up your your flow. And I try to invest, even if it was the difference between a massively expensive album or film. Yeah. versus a artist indie artist that doesn't have a budget but i really like the person or i love i love the music i still love to work with those guys and if they don't have the budget i gotta be careful to not just like rush through these things and focus on the larger stuff so i i, I have to balance my time where i can focus equally on the two because there's something there with you know projects that really doesn't have the budget that you can really take up a step yeah by doing the things you do. So yeah, I think work's been really good and will be pretty great for the next foreseeable horizon. But I think at the same time, now that the world's slowly opening and stuff, I think there is options to get in more where we're working with people and getting out there again. And I'm starting to get calls to start engineering again, which is very interesting. And half the time, I'm like, I don't even know if I want to do that as much as I love mixing and staying in my own orbit. But I think it's smart to be out there and just push yourself to get back out there. Because a lot of people have kind of gotten used to being in their own universe. And does that make sense? It's like we have to kind of relearn how to get out and be around people again instead of enjoy because we're all, I mean, I'm an introvert, so I love being in my own 
five people in my life kind of a thing. But I think it's really nice to get out and kind of work around people. I do miss that. I was working with a bunch of people for many years, almost every day. And then that just stopped. So we have to kind of relearn how to do that and try not to change the industry too much based on what happened in the world in general. You know what I mean? Like where everyone just stays at home and we're just doing Zoom calls and stuff. No, totally. I think it's, you're absolutely right. It's a case of kind of relearning and adapting, but not kind of trying to reinvent the wheel as it were. Um, But I mean, you know, it's great to hear that there's, there's so much going on and, and really fascinating to hear about your career and your, your kind of path into, into this world. It's been, it's been really interesting. And, um, and, and a huge pleasure to have you on on the show with us. So thank you so much for for joining us. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah. and hopefully we'll, um, we'll we'll speak again soon. Uh, absolutely, I would say just make good music. That's my only. Yeah. What a note to end note. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Mark. And thank um, you. Yeah. Good. Thank good you, talking Dan. to you. Thank you. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.